So, first of all, just uh, decide to say a very warm welcome to all of you. Uh, some very familiar faces here, and welcome back. And for those of you who are new here, particularly, um, welcome. And there is something, I think, quite delightful. You know, many times we have retreats and People come from so many different backgrounds, so many different stories, so many different reasons for being on retreat. And I think something particularly delightful about these retreats is that underlying all of our different experiences and stories, there, there's a kind of singularity in at least this one area that everyone here is in some way endeavoring to, to bring this practice and teaching um, very much into their lives and into their working lives. Now, I know some of you, this is your first time at Gaia House, and I'm very aware that, you know, coming to a center like this for the first time can be a little, uh, I don't quite sure what the word is, <laughs> You might have had the thought already, what have I got myself into? Mm. Um, you know, the Buddha statues, the silence, all the cushions, and just to be very clear at the outset that our, our mission here is not to convert you to Buddhism. Um, just so we've got that on the table. Some introductions for those of you who haven't met us. This is John, John Teasdale, Jenny Wilkes, and my name is Christina Feldman. So what we want to do this evening is, is really to give you a kind of um, framework for how the next few days are going to unfold for uh, about what we want to emphasize a little bit about the teaching and practice. Now, you will hear us over these days um, probably making quite a few references to the teachings of the Buddha. Um, and just to be clear why we do that, I mean, the teaching of mindfulness is something that has a very, very long history. And as many psychologists who've been to Asia or studied Buddhist psychology come to see that there, there has existed for 2,600 years about this very refined map of the human mind and how it can work and how it can react. And I think one of the great gifts, certainly in my understanding of the Buddhist teaching, is, is this kind of opens up the universality of this story of the mind and what it can do. And also the potential and the possibility within each of our minds. 
It is not just, I think, that Buddhist psychology is offering this kind of refined map of consciousness. But of course, within it, uh, there is then also offered this very kind of developmental path in which a consciousness can be developed which is clear, balanced, kind, compassionate, um, based upon insight and based upon understanding. Now, what we're going to do here over these days, and, and admittedly, you know, this is a fairly short retreat, so we will be actually going through what in Buddhist psychology is called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. It is the kind of container or context in which all of insight meditation is developed, in which all teachings of mindfulness actually have their roots. Um, but appreciating that in a short retreat, this will be something like a, a kind of a bus tour through the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, each one of them can be developed in, and understood in much greater depth. But hopefully here we will have a real taste. Now, this teaching that we will be talking about here in this practice, you know, over the last 2,600 years that it's been in existence, in many ways this teaching has always been in a process of translation. I mean, if you look right back to the earliest times of the Buddha, you know, as the teaching moved into places like China and Korea and Tibet and Southeast Asia, there's always been a kind of process of translation that has gone on as this teaching has met different cultures. And it really is just simply a teaching of freedom and a teaching of understanding. Now, what is fascinating, of course, is that as this, this teaching that we'll be engaging in a very practical way here, as it has come into our culture, that process of translation is very, very much being continuing. And, of course, part of that translation is this quite fascinating dialogue that is in process today between, you know, Western sciences and this kind of very ancient teaching, the dialogue that's going on between neuroscience and the practice of meditation, the dialogue that's going on between the whole kind of therapeutic world and how this practice of mindfulness can really be of benefit. You know, and it's certainly my experience that, you know, I, I think both traditions have been very and are being very enriched by this dialogue. I mean, I see in the ways in which Buddhist teaching, Buddhist meditation has been enriched and informed by Western science, and I think vice versa. I think the point of convergence, the point of convergence, I might say, between this teaching and practice and the work that many of you are doing in your lives, the work that many of you are engaged in, and then the point of convergence here is that what we're doing here is really about ending 
finding the ways to bring about the end of struggle and pain and suffering. And I think all of us know in our experience that that bringing to an end struggle and pain of suffering doesn't come out of wishful thinking or hoping. It really comes out of understanding on a very deep level the ways in which struggle and resistance and pain, sorrow, are really born and created within consciousness. So this teaching that we, this practice that we engage in, the entirety of this teaching, is really a practice and teaching of let's look a little deeper. Let's see what's going on in our minds, in our hearts. Let's see if we can understand this. Let's see how that can be transformed. And I, I think this has really been a very timeless search. You know, 2,600 years ago, if you read, you know, like the sort of classical Buddhist text, 2,600 years ago, you, you see people coming to the Buddha with exactly the same questions people are probably raising in your clinics and, you know, your therapeutic situations. You know, it's very timeless questions of, you know, what do we do with the realities of, of change, of pain, of aging, of sickness, of loss, of death? What do we do with the realities of a, uh, of a world that doesn't always seem to conform to the way we want it to be? What do we do with the situations when our world seems to, to crumble and when we feel that we have nothing to rely on? These are kind of very ancient, very timeless dilemmas. And it was something the Buddha addressed very clearly. He said there are a whole variety of, variety of ways of responding to the realities of this fragile and uncertain life. That one way is the way of, you know, aversion and fear and resistance. That there's a way of blame and judgment. There's a way of despair and depression. Or, and he said these are the ways that will lead to further struggle and sorrow. And he said there might be another way, which is to investigate, to really nurture the kindness, compassion that allows us to enter into this world that we share emotionally, psychologically, life, and understand it understand it with compassion, with kindness. Nyanapanikotero is one of the much respected teachers in this tradition. When he talked about understanding or about the development of insight, the development of understanding, really talks about it in, in three steps. And the first is very much to know the mind. Very much to know our minds, to be intimate with the mind, to understand it, simply to know what our mind is doing moment to moment. Second, we talked about, is to shape the mind, to see that our mind is always being shaped by something. You know, it's always been shaped, it can be shaped by agitation, by doubt, by aversion, by confusion. But also the mind can be shaped 
by kindness, by investigation, by calmness, by serenity. And the third step, he said, is very much to liberate the mind, to free the mind from patterns of suffering, of conflict, to free the mind from the causes of distress and pain. I think of a, a sort of more contemporary sort of way of saying this. I, uh, there's a story about a, a young boy who's, who's having a nightmare, and, and in his nightmare he's, he's running from this monster that is chasing him, and it, it's one of those terrible dreams. He, the little boy, the faster he runs, he just doesn't seem to get anywhere. The monster gets closer and closer till the monster jumps on his back and knocks him to the ground. And the little boy in his nightmare, he begins to kind of, you know, flail and flounder and shout for help, you know, help me, help me, what should I do, what should I do? And the, the monster says to the little boy, and he says, why ask me, it's your dream. In some ways, this is our mind. We are the ones to understand it. We are the ones who can really find the ways to free our mind. So, I uh, would wish you a very fruitful retreat. A very fruitful retreat time here. You going second? So, first I'd just like to really reiterate Christina's welcome. People I recognize and people I don't, and those who are here for the first time and those who are regular visitors and everything in between. I hope it will be a very enjoyable and fruitful, nourishing few days. Uh, so I just want to say a little bit about um, one of the, the ways that we set the context for our, our practice here. Um, in, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, and as, as I think Christina said, we're, we're not in any way that this doesn't require any allegiance to, to Buddhism, but in this tradition, the practice of meditation and mindfulness is very much seen within a framework of an ethical foundation, a foundation in our, our basic um, attitude to, to life, to each other. And meditation and insight grow out of, of that. Uh, so um, really this is just acknowledging that our... Um, our lifestyle, our values, our behavior has a very powerful effect on our mental states and, and therefore we bring that into our, our practice. This is implicit, I think, in the, the attitudinal foundations of mindfulness-based therapies. Um, but perhaps it's one of the differences between coming on retreat in a center like this and perhaps compared with doing an eight-week course or doing a more secular um, mindfulness training, is that we make this more explicit, really. Uh, and in the traditional framework, we make this explicit by upholding five precepts or ethical trainings, ethical guidelines. And these are very definitely not commandments. They're not handed down by some higher authority. Um, it's more really a, a natural morality. It's, it's based on how we would naturally behave or spontaneously behave if we really saw the consequences of our actions for ourselves and for others. 
if we really understood that acting out of self-centered desire actually leads to suffering and acting out of kindness and generosity actually leads to happiness and freedom. So in the meantime, until that is absolutely crystal clear to us and our behavior flows accordingly, we take these as precepts, as ways of supporting us in, in this way. And on retreat, this is also, I think, particularly helpful. We're coming together as quite a large community of people in, you know, it's quite a large house, but we still rub up against each other quite a lot. So it's very much a way of helping things run smoothly as well. So we really request that these five precepts um, are kept here, these trainings, but also inviting you to explore the effect of that on your mind states and when you leave here to, to consider how they might be expressed, how they might apply in your everyday lives. And the precepts describe behavior or activity, but they're very much part of training the mind, training the heart, because all our activity arises out of our mental states. And so to practice the precepts requires mindfulness, it requires attention, uh, just as much as all the other practices that we undertake here. So just to go through the, the five guidelines, the first is we undertake the training principle of abstaining from killing or harming any living being. There's a lot of debate within the Buddhist tradition about what that means in terms of diet um, and does it mean not eating meat or, or does it not mean that. I'm not going to go into that, but I think uh, you don't have to be a vegetarian to know that there's a great deal of suffering and, and really cruelty in modern farming methods. So here we invite you to, um, we offer a vegetarian diet, so... Um, that may for some people be quite challenging. It may be for some people perfectly normal. But it's interesting, perhaps, if it's unusual for you, just the practice of renouncing meat-eating while on retreat. Another area to consider this precept, this may not be that relevant in January, but is in how we respond to insects and small creatures that we might find that we're sharing Gaia House with. And... Uh, yeah, responding in a way that doesn't harm them. And then the more positive counterpart of the precept is to treat each other with kindness, with respect, with tolerance and with patience. As I said, this is you know, a fairly crowded retreat and there will be times that you will need to compromise or, or practice patience, particularly if you're sharing rooms. So the first precept is really not harming, basic, a basic attitude of not harming and of, of treating people kindly. And the others are, in a way, different expressions of that. So the second is to not take anything that is not freely given. We might say it's not stealing, but there's something slightly more subtle, I think, about the wording, not taking anything that isn't freely given. That might be things, it might be time, it might be energy... Uh, and it also includes being generous and being considerate towards others. So if there's any doubt, if, if something's out and you, there's any doubt about whether it's being offered to you, just, just check that out. Just ask one of the coordinators. Um, but I think one area to be aware of this is 
there are some special diets at Gaia House and they're very clearly labelled. So just to be clear that they're for the people who requested them. Sometimes um, those of us who, who eat dairy products might be offered cheese and the, the vegans get offered hummus and I often think, hmm, I quite like some hummus. But, you know, I haven't signed up for that diet. So just one area to really be aware of. The third precept, uh, the third principle is about not exploiting or harming others through sexuality. And on retreat, the invitation is just really to avoid sexual activity altogether. Um, And in the tradition, that would mean sexual activity of body, speech and mind. But our our mind is perhaps, uh, you know, a bit has a life of its own, but certainly of, of body and speech. And this is out of respect for other people on the on the retreat and also just to focus our energy on practice, on, on the meditation and the mindfulness practice. And the fourth one, the fourth precept is in, in everyday life, it's just not engaging in untrue or harmful speech. Uh, and that's the harmful speech is defined as harsh, divisive or frivolous uh, gossip. Uh, but on retreat, we invite um, what we call noble silence. So I'll say a little more about that in, in a minute. And the fifth guideline, the fifth ethical precept, is to avoid intoxicants. Um, literally, I think it's something like liquor and fermented spirits that cloud the mind. Um, so basically, uh, avoiding alcohol and recreational drugs. You know, Obviously, if you're on prescribed medications, keep taking them. Um, but avoiding drugs or anything that really is a way of diluting or manipulating our mental states, our experience. Uh, the intention being to keep the mind as clear as possible for practice. Uh, so if you smoke, um, the request is to go out of the grounds to do that. But it might be an opportunity, um, if you haven't already resolved on the 1st of January, to, to give it up. It might be an opportunity to, to give up the cigarettes for a few days. So those are the five ethical precepts. And I'd just like to say a little more about maintaining silence. Um, probably most of you or all of you knew this before you arrived, or it might have been a little bit of a, a shock, but it's, it can be quite challenging. So the request is that for the duration of the retreat, we talk only as necessary. So for, during the work period, you might need to talk to the coordinators. Obviously, at interviews uh, or during question and answer sessions, there are invitations to talk. But not to chat, not to communicate in, in any other way. So this can feel quite uh, a challenge if it's unfamiliar. So it might be useful to really see this not as a rule or as something that's being imposed, but as a gift. It's really a tremendous opportunity, very rare opportunity in our culture to go somewhere where you can be clear that other people aren't going to keep engaging in conversation, that we can have an environment of silence. And this is tremendous support for meditation practice and for mindfulness generally. Um, It's a different way to be with other people. We don't have to be concerned about our image or what impression we're making. We don't need to think about how witty our repartee is or whatever. It can be a great relief. 
And it also means we can't just escape into conversation when, when things get tough. So really, if we all respect this, it, it's a very mutual support for everybody's practice. And it means that we're just less distracted, that the practice can go deeper. We have a much deeper experience of ourselves, of our mind states, of our emotional states. And at the end of the retreat, the period in silence can support us in being more aware of speech in our everyday lives. So silence here doesn't just mean the absence of speech. Uh, it's an invitation to have a break from other ways of communicating, and particularly mobile phones, uh, even, even texting. Unless there are some very specific circumstances, say a, an illness in your family where you have to be contactable, in which case please let us know if, if, if that's an issue for you. Or you might need to call your partner or your family if, if they're not aware of this and just say, you're going to be out of contact, but Gaia House has a phone number. They can, they can call in an emergency if they need to get a message to you. Um, the coordinators are very happy to take your mobile phones and <coughs> lock them up in a safe place if you feel that the temptation will be too much. Um, and again, it's just really to, to stay present and to not dilute the experience of being here. Um, in a way, I think the, the advent of mobile phones makes it more difficult. The temptation is much stronger than when it was a, a payphone in the shed that, that we would be tempted to use. But really to invite you to turn it off, put it at the bottom of your bag. We'd also encourage you to to renounce, if you like, or to, to just have a break from a lot of reading and from writing copious journals, um, so particularly reading. It's okay to take some notes, and maybe in talks, and, and, and to make some notes for yourself, but I think often, again, we can, particularly because there's lots of time, we can get into writing elaborate diaries, and it can just really take us away from our present experience. So... Now, really be aware of that and, and of, of what you're writing and why. I know certainly I've been on retreat sometimes and, and broke this rule and then afterwards thought, why have I got this detailed record of my mental states between 10 and 10.15? It's not that interesting now. So just to be aware of that. There's also a lot of nonverbal communication that takes place, and some of that's lovely, just acknowledging people, smiling, making eye contact, but just to be aware again of whether maybe once we've you know, smiled at our friend, we don't have to keep doing that. So we're not saying you need to avoid eye contact, but just to, to keep what some teachers call custody of, custody of the eyes, just noticing where we're looking and why. Are we trying to kind of make contact because we're struggling with the silence, because we're struggling to be with our own experience? And can we work with that without communicating? So that includes not writing notes to other yogis, other meditators, other people on retreat. If you have real concerns about somebody, maybe your roommate or somebody that you think is, is struggling or is distressed, then... Um, leave a note or mention it to one of the coordinators or, or one of the three of us uh, when you get a chance. Um, 
and again, unless it's a real emergency, communicate to, to the coordinators and the teachers by leaving a note on the notice board. I think the managers, the coordinators have gone through this with you. Um, so that, again, it's just all about allowing our practice to take us into a place of stillness and, and deep silence. A place of silence in the mind that, that we can touch that really is beneath thoughts and, and words and and ultimately, we can be in touch with silence even when we're speaking and acting. And practicing uh, silence is a way of really finding that place in the mind. The, the Buddha himself, uh, one of the, the names he's known by is, is Shakyamuni, which means the sage of the, the Shakyan tribe. That was his tribe. But Muni, the word that's translated sage, it literally means the silent one. So although he taught for 45 years, it's like his... His basic disposition was to be quiet unless he had something to say. Um, and Hafiz, the Persian poet, he says, a day of silence can be a pilgrimage unto itself. So really encouraging you to see silence as a, an opportunity, as a pilgrimage in itself, rather than as something, um, yeah, something imposed on you. And just really to explore what, how you experience it. So that's really all I want to say about the precepts and silence and uh, just hope that you have a, as I say, a very nourishing retreat. Well, you can never be made welcome enough, so (laughs) welcome again. Uh, it's lovely to see you here. Our aim for this retreat is that together we create a situation in which by deepening practice and deepening understanding, we are better able to transform our own suffering and crucially also better able to transform the suffering of the patients and clients that we teach. And to create that situation, we need to bring together um, quite a number of separate conditions in a particular constellation or pattern. (coughs) Some of them you've already heard of, the, the silence is crucial, the precepts, as well as that obviously there are the formal meditation practices, the sitting, the walking, the mindful movement. And there will be many um, opportunities for instruction in relation to the detail of those practices and there will be Dharma talks. Um, But over and above, and just as are even more important than those more specific aspects of this situation, there are certain more general qualities of heart and mind that are a vital ingredient, vital ingredients of the mix if we are really to create a situation that will transform suffering. And the invitation is as best we can, each of our waking moments of the retreat, to nurture 
and cultivate these qualities that I'll mention um, moment to moment, um, beginning, if you wish, right now. So bearing in mind the possibility of starting from this very sitting. Now, one of these qualities, very obviously, is mindfulness. And we will be encouraging you from time to time to bring mindfulness to all aspects of your experience in the retreat, not just within the formal practices, but in the same way that you do with your clients and patients, really encouraging mindfulness of every aspect of life as best we can, being present with everything that arises. That retreat, the retreat provides a wonderful opportunity to explore just how feasible that is, what are the difficulties in doing it. So as wholeheartedly as you can, the invitation is to give that one a go. But awareness by itself has only limited capacity, power to transform suffering. Transformative mindfulness, for it to be maximally healing and freeing, has to be suffused with qualities of understanding and certain key qualities of heart and mind. As far as the understanding goes, as I say, you will be hearing quite a lot, probably more than the average retreat, of instructions and Dharma talks. And this will be giving you information at a relatively conceptual level. And the invitation is then to use this more conceptual information, if you like, as a lens with which to approach your experience as you're practicing. Um, Because it's really that experiential knowledge that is where the transformation occurs, seeing things differently, realizing what is happening in the moment. But then these qualities of heart that I mentioned are absolutely foundational. And these are qualities of kindness and compassion. And within the path that we'll be following, these are considered absolutely foundational and central. And I'm sure many of you will be aware that increasingly within mindfulness-based applications, the importance of suffusing everything that we do with qualities of kindness and compassion is being increasingly appreciated. And the reason why it's so important is that so much of our suffering and our clients and patients' suffering is rooted in a very basic unkindness, an unkindness to ourselves. We're often our own worst critic. We can be very harshly judgmental, self-critical, in a way that if we were to speak to anybody else in the same way, um, we would be horrified or hear somebody else speaking this way. We'd be horrified, but we do it to ourselves. And we demand things of ourselves. We push ourselves. We drive ourselves in ways that we wouldn't expect to treat anybody else. Obviously, this is true of our patients as well. Depression, very fundamental aspect, is the judgmental, self-critical qualities. So there's 
and kindness to ourselves. This and kindness to our experience. We reject many of our thoughts and feelings and unpleasant body sensations. We tell them, tell ourselves it shouldn't be like this. We wish them out of existence. There's a fundamental unkindness in our stance to so much of our experience. And equally, we all suffer from our unkindness to others, the harsh words, the unkind actions, the meanness, the lack of generosity. Um, They all, the irritability, they all rebound on us sooner or later to create further suffering. So, the invitation is as a counterbalance to that fundamental unkindness that sits under our suffering, so much of our suffering, to cultivate moment by moment the opposite, a sense of kindness, kindness to ourselves, a basic gentleness, a softness, particularly when we're having a hard time. So when the mind's all over the place, rather than just beating ourselves up for it, just seeing this as an opportunity to be kind. And even if we find that we can't be kind in that situation, being kind to that. Kindness, there's never a lack of opportunity to offer. Kindness to our experience. To allow our experience to be as it is. So often we're in a struggle with it. We demand that it be other than it is. Um, We get into an argument with our experience. This simple stance, which I'll expand on, of allowing our experience to be just as it is, is a fundamental stance of kindness. We respect our experience. If at all possible, even seeing it as a gift that the universe has delivered to us in this moment, to give us the teaching that we need in this precise moment. Because often if you look at it, that's exactly what some of our most difficult experiences are providing us. So the invitation is to welcome experience consciously, to see all experience as grist to the mill. As far as others are concerned, um, in the context of a silent retreat, we can be kind to them through observing the precepts and the silence that Jenny described. Because fundamentally, those are rooted in the wish for the well-being of others. We can be generous. You know, if we're uh, in our work period, you know, we finish before other people, we can go and help them. We can silently to ourselves as we pass people, wish them well, particularly if they're looking somewhat harassed or challenged in that moment. Related really to this fundamental gesture of kindness to experience is the second quality I want to focus on, which is that of letting go, of letting be, allowing. I'm sure you're very aware that this is a fundamental aspect of MBCT, MBSR. And really it's a question of 
not demanding of experience that it be other than it is. Letting go of that struggle, cultivating patience and a kindness to experience. And really related to that is the invitation to adopt a voluntary simplicity. Because I'm sure you've heard this really lovely notion of the simplicity of mindfulness. All we have to do is come to this moment, be aware of this moment, respond to it with care and understanding, and that's all we have to do, taking care of this moment, we'll take care of the next moment, which will take care of the next moment, and our life unfolds and we live happily ever after. Now, you may have noticed that it doesn't always work out that way. And the major reason is that we have these deeply ingrained habits of mind, which is that we want things to be different than they are. We want to be having experiences that we're not having, and we want to be not having the experiences that we are having. So the invitation here with this general stance of allowing and opening and letting be, is to allow experience to be just as it is, so that we can know it, so that we can understand it, so that we can relate to it differently. Um, Simplification is one way that we can do this. Let go of all the agendas that we may have bought, all the plans, Normally, what takes us away from mindfulness in the moment is all our to-do lists, the decisions we have to make, the planning, how we're going to control life. Here you have this wonderful, wonderful opportunity where you have no responsibility. You have no decisions to make. You have no plans to unfold. You will be told absolutely everything to do. Um, And the choices are very limited sitting and walking and working and getting up and eating Um, so the invitation really is to seize this as an experiment if you like where you can just surrender to the schedule and rather than thinking through your own parallel schedule and each session deciding well am I going to go to this should I go and have a lie down should I go and uh, have a cup of tea you know just at least for a day see what happens if you just follow the schedule Um, and um, allow yourself just to be carried along moment by moment with it. Um, Sure you know um, Henry David Thoreau is one of John Kabat-Zinn's favourite authors and he has a number of quotes that are very relevant here. Um, One that I love is our life is frittered away by detail. Simplify, simplify. And he himself, as an experiment in simplicity, went off to the woods and lived in a small cabin by the side of Walden Pond. And just to finish up, let me say what, eh, the way he described his reasons for that. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. So the invitation is to use the silence and the simplicity that are available here on this retreat as an opportunity to come really close 
to life, to draw close to your experience, to become intimate with it, to connect with it. Um, and that way, we lay the foundations for the transformation of our suffering and of our lives. So I wish you well in this trip to the woods. Thank you. So we're going to end the evening. I know many of you have traveled today, come from work, probably tired. So we're going to end the evening just with a very short sitting. But before we do that, you might want to take a moment or two to stand up and stretch. And also just, you know, I don't know kind of what gets communicated sometimes non-verbally here. But if you walked into this room and saw it filled with all these black mats on the floor, you know, you might have got the idea that it was somehow compulsory to sit on those black mats on the floor. There are lots of chairs in the back room. And if you are more comfortable in a chair some of the time or all of the time, I really encourage you, please pull one out, put it along the side walls. Um, but take a moment or two now just to stand up and stretch, and then we'll sit. <laughs> Now, over the days that we're here, we we will be giving you probably more instruction than you ever wanted to hear. Um, But tonight, just really a very short, a very simple sitting. Most important, I think, for those of you who are newer to practice, to really do what you can to ensure that your, your body and your posture is really as relaxed as it can be. Um, So just taking a moment or two to settle into your body. Feeling the places where your body is touching the mat or the cushion or chair. Letting your your back and your neck be as upright, as alert as you're able to be. And just checking in with your body if there's any places of tension or tightness in your shoulders, your face. your hands, just letting them soften, and 
just aware of the, the quietude around you. Relaxing into that quality of stillness, quiet. Just beginning to be more intentional in your attention and beginning to sense what it is to gather and to collect your attentiveness and to bring your mind into your body, to be mindful of your body simply breathing. Mindful of how your body expands with the incoming breath. Relaxes with the outgoing breath. Just letting the thoughts just sit in the background of your attention. Coming and going. And just bringing into the foreground of your attention a moment-to-moment awareness of just one breath at a time.
Breathing in with mindfulness. Breathing out with mindfulness. Aware of where your attention has gone in those moments. It's not present within your breathing. What I would like to suggest this evening is um, really to, if you have any kind of outstanding business or anything to do, um, to try and get that taken care of this evening um, so that the next few days we can really be as dedicated as we can be to, to essentially deepening in this practice. Um, one thing that you can begin this evening is, is to be aware that you really don't... One thing you can really let go of here is being in a hurry. You know, like you really don't need to be in a hurry. 
<laughs> and really, you know, sometimes you get a sense of how much that is a state of mind that we live with too often in our lives. You know, the sort of leaning forward into the next moment, the hurrying, the haste. Let yourself begin to slow down this evening. You don't have to move like a tortoise. There's nothing more virtuous in doing that. But just being aware that you can really relax into your body. And I think so much of this practice, you know, is body-based. And learning to be present in the body as a training ground for being present in all things. So this evening as you begin, you know, to get ready for bed, to do whatever you need to do, really have a sense of what it is to rest in your body to actually be in the body, to stay connected with the body. Um, and there's a lot of moments when that doesn't happen, and we come back. So I hope that you rest as well as you can. Um, you've probably seen the schedule. There's a wake-up bell at 6.30 in the morning, uh, sitting at 7 o'clock. Um, and tomorrow we'll be giving some much more kind of full-on instruction about, about the sitting and walking practice. Sleep well.